Welcome to the teaching ministry of Faith Bible Church. We pray as you listen to the following message, you will be encouraged and equipped to passionately pursue Christ. For more information, please visit our website at fbcevansville.com. All right, so, giving you the basic outline. Uh, William Carey was born into a poor and humble family. Um, Let's see here. Is it possible for, Darren, is it possible for me to see what's behind me up there? Right now we have the messages scrolling. Um, So, he was born into a poor and humble family. Uh, His father was a school teacher, um, though he himself would only receive the equivalent of basically an elementary school education. How many of you are in elementary school still? Okay, so the education you have, Mr. Carey, basically that's the education he had through his life. But he became a college professor. He received an honorary doctorate. He was a skilled linguist, mastering 40, over 40 languages. Uh, so it's amazing what God did with this man and with his life. Um, <clears throat> about that time that he was born, the steam engine was patented and evangelist George Whitfield died. This man taught himself, out of this humble first home, he taught himself Latin at the age of 12 using a book that his father had found dusty on the shelves, took it down, brought it home, gave it to his son, and at the age of 12 he mastered Latin. Well, he would on his own master Greek, Hebrew, French, and Dutch. He became the professor of Bengali, Sanskrit, and Marathi at Fort William College in India. He also taught himself to read uh, all of these uh, languages, and he said it is known to require no extraordinary talents to learn in a space of a year or two at the most the language of any people on the earth. This man was a polyglot, many tongues, many languages. Um, Now, in 1775, you see the first of three major influences, his conversion. He became an apprentice shoemaker and had religious talks with his co-worker, John War. So through the godly influences of John War, William Carey became convinced that he was a sinner, and he was struggling about his sin and his relationship to God. And it shows the real benefit of good, godly friendships. Matter of fact, if you think about it, D.L. Moody. Does anybody remember the name? of the Sunday school teacher. D.L. Moody was converted by a Sunday school teacher while Moody was working in a shoe store. Well, it's interesting because Carey was working as a cobbler, fixing shoes as he met this godly man. So those of you who are engaged in secular jobs, don't overlook the fact that God can use you in a mighty way. Right? Don't look down upon your vocation, your calling. God can use you in a phenomenal way. Well, he became a dissenter, uh, and dissenters were Baptists. They were not part of the Church of England. Um, and around that time, the Declaration of Independence is being penned. Cook discovers Hawaii. Voltaire dies, and Amazing Grace is published. So in that time... Carey, in 1781, he marries Dorothy Dolly Placker, and 
she um, uh, is his first of three wives. He would lose two wives. Only one would outlive him. So he begins preaching every other week as he's growing in his faith. He's baptized by John Ryland. And that name, that friendship will last for all of Kerry's life. And at that time, the new Sunday school movement is beginning and enrolls about 250,000 children. So again, think about if you've been involved in Sunday school, Mr. Carey was influenced at that time. During that time when Sunday school movement, D.L. Moody, you know, this is, this is an amazing time. So the second of the three major influences is when, let's go back here if we can. Let's see here. Uh, let's see, settles in. Nope. All right. Back here. All right, looks like I skipped one. Well, the second of the major uh, influences that you have on your, on your page there, 1785, was Captain Cook's journals. So here's this young man, and he's excited about the world, and he reads about all of the travels of Captain Cook. And he gets excited about adventure. And this is something that God uses to inculcate in him a desire and an understanding about the world. Not just his little hamlet in England, but beyond England. And he starts getting excited about that. So, without that, I don't think he would have ever caught a vision of the world at large. 1787, he's ordained. And in 1789, he begins a pastorate at the Baptist Church in Harvey uh, Lane, Leicester. And this is the third of the influences, where his life really blossomed. His concern for the unconverted people outside of England um, would take place. In his cobbler shop, because he had to work three jobs. He worked as a teacher, a cobbler, and a pastor. But in his cobbler shop, out of the leather materials that he would use to make shoes and boots, he makes a map of the world. And as he brings this to school, he teaches the children a little bit about geography, and he says to them, pagans, there are pagans here. And he tries to get the children excited about the fact that there are people who have never heard the gospel. So it's his concern for the unconverted people outside of England. In 1792, he publishes an article called an inquiry into the obligations of Christians to use means for the conversion of heathens in which, the title's not over yet, in which the religious state of the different nations of the world, the success of former undertakings, and the practicality of further undertakings are considered. Wow. <laughs> I mean, that's some title, right? <laughs> Well, it, became, it becomes his manifesto and the manifesto for the modern missionary movement. Um, later that year, he's asked to speak to a group of pastors on, uh, and an association of 24 churches, and he preaches on the text of Isaiah 54, verses 2 and 3. Listen to this text. Enlarge the place of your tent. Stretch out the curtains of your dwellings. Spare not. Lengthen the cords and strengthen your pegs. For you will spread abroad to the right and to the left, and your descendants will possess nations and will resettle the desolate cities. K. 
Carrie uses that text to persuade his associates that God is calling the Christians to enlarge their tent, to stretch out their pegs, to make room for the converted peoples of the world. And it becomes, as I've said, his manifesto. Well, he is then ordained to go to Bengali. He originally wanted to go to Tahiti, but through a disappointment, the crew decided he was going to go to Bengali. Well, and it's interesting that they would decide to go to India because, as you may remember, through the, uh, the Indian Trading Company, the East Indian Trading Company, the people from England were more concerned about financial gain than for any concern of people's souls. Matter of fact, the government saw it as a, as a threat to the financial gain that could be gained from India. And so they did not want any missionaries coming in. They wanted instead to subjugate the people and to use them for the country's financial gains. That was a big hurdle because he couldn't get passage to India. And he was on the dock. His suitcases were loaded on board. He and his son were on the dock. And the captain said, no, I'm not doing it. I'm not risking my, my, my life and my financial gain to bring you to India when it's against the law. So they took his suitcases off the boat, put them on the dock, and Carrie had to go back home. And John Thomas, who again, a lifelong friend, he decided that they would go through the Danish to get to India. And they would be under the protection of the Danish consulate and avoid the persecution of the English countrymen. So, well... He is married to Dorothy, as I meant, but in 1795, Dorothy slips into delusions and goes further and further into madness. Now, the Second Great Awakening is starting in Kentucky, not too far from here, in America at that time. In 1797, he completes the draft of the Bengali New Testament, and he succeeds in translating the Bible into 11 languages and the New Testament, and he first settles in the jungle, and here's the picture that you see there, but he continues preaching, and he converts at that time the scriptures into 11 different languages. Now remember, all this time, what's happening is he's moving. In the first seven months that he's in India, his family moves five times. And part of it is to escape the pressure from the English. And part of it is because living in the jungle, as you might imagine, has risks. There's a tiger outside of their house. There are snakes inside their home. This is further driving his wife Dorothy into madness. Well, in 1799, uh, the family moves and three people, three families join them. William Ward... Joshua and Hannah Marshman and another family, they move into the area to help with the mission. Now, they finally move in 1800 to Sarampore, which is outside of Calcutta, 
what the, what's today pronounced Kolkata, and they help organize a missionary community. And in 1800, after seven years of work, he baptizes his first uh, convert, Krishna Pal. And you see uh, on the picture there a picture of the baptism. It's black and white because, again, color hadn't been developed yet, right? That's a joke. It's all right. It's a bad joke, but that's all I got. And the, the photograph there is actually a picture that I took of the site on the Ganges River where Krishna Pal was baptized. And it is opposite, on the other side of the road from that, is the old mission church, which was a Danish church, early established during the time of Kerry. Right now, Jody Chakravarti preaches at the old mission church. So, a little context there. So at that time, Washington, D.C. is now the capital of, of the United States. It moves from New York to Washington, D.C. The Megali New Testament is printed, and he begins teaching at Fort William College in 1801. And in 1804, there are 19 missions established throughout India. So the work of William Carey established 19 missions 10 years or so after he arrived. And about that time, the British slave trade is abolished. He's granted a doctorate from Brown University, and his first wife dies. After being basically chained up for 12 years because of her madness, she tried to kill him multiple times. Imagine all this work going on while your wife is descending further and further into insanity. Well, in 1808, he marries his second wife, and the Sanskrit New Testament was published. And he uses local people to get that work done. He uses local people and pays them, develops friendships, and these are part of those people who become converted and convinced of Christianity. Well, American missionaries arriving in that time in Hawaii, Beethoven goes deaf and eventually writes the Ninth Symphony, Ode to Joy. <clears throat> Land price in the U.S. is fixed at $1.25 an acre. How many of you would clean out your bank accounts now and go back in time <laughs> in Mr. Peabody's Wayback Machine and buy land? Well, 1820, Carey organizes the Agricultural Society of Bengal, and we're going to talk about that a little bit more later. <clears throat> his second wife dies, and Carey marries his third wife. In that time, Sarampur College is established. That's an incredible feat. It still stands today. I had a chance to go and visit it. Um, but unfortunately, in 1827, uh, 1823, William Ward, one of the people that came over, he dies. 1827, Sarampur uh, severs ties with the British Missionary Society. And that's the group of people that sent Carey to India. There's disagreement about what's happening. Part of their concern is that he's involved in all of these, all of these efforts on behalf of India and the people in India. And they're saying, hold it. You're only supposed to preach the gospel and that's it. Well, there was a big problem. They were not financially supporting him. Early on, he actually ran a dye company. So the pen 
the ink that you may have in your pens, indigo blue, he actually ran a factory specifically to support himself and his starving family because the British Missionary Society did not understand life as a missionary. Again, remember, this is just the beginning days of the whole missionary movement. There was not a lot of understanding about what it took to support the effort. Well, as I've said, 1893, William Ward dies. His family is, uh, has a number of people that die off. He loses three children of the seven that are born. Um, <clears throat> there's a gravesite in uh, outside of Kolkata. This is the gravesite. It has Carrie's uh, tomb and the tombs of his family. Um, and about that time, Charles Finney is having his revivals starting in New York City. Well, there's a Calcutta bank crash, more financial jeopardy, but Sarampur, the missions group, reunites with the British Missionary Society. They're beginning to understand the financial fluctuations. 1834, June 9th, William Carey dies. Here's a picture of his a plaque on his grave, a wretched, poor, and helpless worm, on thy kind arms I fall. He's basically quoting Isaiah and a line from a hymn by William Cooper. Well, about that same time, the Spanish Inquisition has ended. Lincoln is elected to the uh, Illinois legislator, and in 1837, Joshua Mars, uh, Marshman also dies. The black plaque on your left, that's the... Uh, on your right, I should say. That's the uh, plaque there opposite his family tomb there in Sarampur. Well, we've talked about the three major principles uh, or major influences. The first, his conversion, the influence of a godly man. Number two, the influence of adventure and a desire for adventure and thinking about world missions. And then third, his concern for unconverted people. Let's move now to the five biblical principles that guided William Carey's life. Five biblical principles that guided William Carey's life. So, to gain encouragement and wisdom from the life of this man, we need to ask, what are the truths that sustained him in pursuing this ministry? And the first and foremost is his love for and dependence on Scripture. Look at this quote here. This is a quote when he sends his son out to the mission field. And he says this to him, the success of your labors does not depend upon outward ceremony, nor does your right to preach the gospel or administer the ordinances of the gospel depend on any such thing, but only on the divine call expressed in the word of God. His commitment to the scriptures was revealed in an astounding number of translation that he himself did or oversaw which includes, finally, 41 languages. Remember, this is a man with an education no different than some of yours. It's amazing what God can do. Because of this biblical command and the pattern of Scripture itself, Carrie was committed to a Bible-centered approach to mission. Now, the second principle. The second principle is this. That commitment to Scriptures generated a consuming passion for the lost and to see them converted. The commitment to the scriptures generated a consuming passion 
to see the lost converted. Translations were the tool. The conversions were the goal. Translations the tool, conversions the goal. And look at this great quote here. He has this quote about a conversation that he has with two Hindu people. In the evening, I had a long conversation with two or three Hindus about the things of God. I first shewed, or showed, them a translation of the Ten Commandments with which they were much delighted. I then tried to make them understand how contrary the Second Commandment was to their practice, and that practice of idolatry. And if you go to India today, you will see idols all over the place. If this were an office, a business office, you would probably see above the door a picture of an elephant with arms. That is the god Ganesh. He is the god of business. But there are many idols all over the place. And you would even see idols that include the Blessed Virgin Mary, an idol of Jesus, along with Krishna, Shiva the Destroyer, Ganesh, because it's very syncretistic. Does anybody remember a passage in the book of Acts where there were tributes to many different gods? It's very much the same thing. Very much the same thing. And he, he uh, let me continue this here. Uh, and as I tried to tell them of the sinful, helpless state of man and the willingness of God to save, but my imperfect knowledge of the language made me liable to mistake their meaning when they spoke and to be misunderstood by them when I spoke. All right? So this was his passion. This was his driving desire. Well, let's go then to the third biblical practice. The third biblical practice and principle was a trust in the principle of prayer. A trust in the practice and principle of prayer. Remember last week we talked about David Brainerd who would spend seasons in prayer and at times, many times during the day or taking a whole day of prayer and how you and I can hardly spend 10 minutes in prayer. I think you all have heard of the story of Charles Spurgeon who gave a tour of his church building And he took the tourists down to the basement. And he said he wanted to show them the boiler room, the powerhouse. What was inside that powerhouse? What was inside that boiler room? Anybody remember? It was people praying. It was people praying. And truly, Carrie understood this. Look at this quote. If in holy solicitude had prevailed in all the assemblies of Christians if constant prayer, right, if constant prayer was practiced, on behalf of their Redeemer's kingdom, we might probably have seen before now not only an open door, what Paul refers to in 2 Corinthians, for the gospel, but many running to and fro and knowledge increased. That's the passage from Daniel. He was absolutely convinced that if Christians really believed in the power of prayer, then that great commission, that prayer that God would send laborers into the harvest, would have already been accomplished. He believed in the power and the principle of prayer. 
Well, the fourth principle, the fourth lesson, uh, the fourth principle is the necessity of fellowship and unity among believers. The necessity of fellowship and unity among believers. So, as Carey wrote in his first journals, during his first two years, he had received no communication back from the British Missionary Society. No communication. When he finally received some letters, there were some sharp barbs of criticism in there. What are you doing being engaged in industrial work? Wow. Nice to hear from you, too. He wrote many letters, and they just never sent back. Based on that, it led him to pursue fellowship in two arenas. The first one being fellowship with other believers. So, Marshman, William Ward, and their families who came to live with Carrie and help with the work, as we mentioned before, they became known as the Sarampore Trio, like the Three Musketeers. Okay? They were always together, always working. And he devised a covenant that was instituted for the protection of their unity. Part of that was to meet every week and to regularly confess and deal with the sins and the hurts that they had with each other. The intent for sin to be addressed quickly and with true offers of confession and forgiveness was the goal. Carey wrote this, honesty, intimacy, and equality were the watchwords for the community. You know, and you and I have different roles. You know, some of us are students. Some of us are homemakers. Some of us are working to honorably provide for our families. Some of us have volunteer positions in the community. Some have volunteer positions at the church fellowship. But truly, brothers and sisters, that's what God calls us to in equanimity, that we see each other as brothers and sisters. Yes, we we honor and appreciate those people who work hard, they're in the nursery or they're serving in a community, but we don't elevate ourselves above each other. We're accountable to each other, and there has to be that honesty, that intimacy, that equanimity among us. The second area where he sought fellowship was in the area of the written word. I forget who said it. Uh, You may know this quote. But someone said, if a man will not read uh, read the thoughts of others, it shows that he has no thoughts of his own, which is pretty clever. Carey got rich encouragement from others to pursue his ministry and his missions. He fed himself at the trough of David Brainerd's diary. Remember how we talked about last week, how Brainerd's diary and Edward's publication of that was a big impetus for the movement. The life and ministry of John Eliot, an early missionary. The sermons and writings of Edwards and writings of others, including John Newton, William Cowper, or Cooper, excuse me, John Bunyan, John Flavel, and Martin Luther. Like those who followed the Apostle Paul, Carey followed 
those lives of men who followed Christ. Brings us to the fifth principle. The fifth principle is this. Personal humility. He was not too proud. He was not absorbed in his own thoughts. He was willing to learn from others. That may, this may have been the greatest key to his success, actually. It may have been the greatest key to his success. Over and over, his journals particularly are filled with honest self-examination and critique of his own heart. Look at this quote that, he, that we have here. My soul is bo- prone to barrenness, and I have every day to mourn over the dreadful stupidity of my nature and the wickedness of my heart, so that I need daily cultivation from the hand of God and from all the means of grace. As he was dying, Mr. Duffy came to visit him, and Carrie is just able to pronounce a few words as the death rattle is going through his throat and in his lungs. And Mr. Duffy prays eloquently for William Carey as he's dying and praises God for this servant. And after he prays and Mr. Duffy is leaving, Carey says this, Mr. Duff, you have been speaking about Dr. Carey, Dr. Carey, but when I am gone, say nothing about Dr. Carey. Speak about Dr. Carey's Savior. Amen. Amen. Good stuff. That humility, that humility is something that we can all learn from. Another quote from him concerning humility. Began the day with uncomfortable expectations and heartbreaking views of my own wretchedness, pride, and unmortified affections within, and confusing appearance. He was concerned about his own hypocrisy. I feel too much sameness to be spiritual. No heart for private duties. He was honest with himself, just like Brainerd. Remember, we talked about this about Brainerd as well. These comments flowed from a man who wrestled honestly with the new nature that Christ provided. Remember the passages from Romans 7? O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from... This was exhibited in all of his works. Even though he accomplished much, he didn't puff himself up. Well, he loved his Savior and yearned nothing from himself to detract from his Savior. Well, let's go now to five lessons. Five lessons to be learned from Carrie's life. The first lesson, the first lesson, very important. Faith in our sovereign God sustains us. Faith in our sovereign God sustains us. Carrie's journals and letters are permeated with trust of the working of God in his life. Whether that difficulty brings us ease or difficulty, Carrie regularly saw both as the gracious workings of God and thus saw both as God's blessings in his life. Let's look at a few things here. I've put a few bullet points up. 
When Kerry was sent by the particular Baptist Society to India, instead of sending him to Tahiti, to Tahiti, as was his original dream, remember, he read The Adventures of Captain Cook? And where did Captain Cook go? He went to Tahiti. And so that's what Kerry's mind was filled with. All right? And you and I may have plans. And all of a sudden we find that those plans are gone. And that can be a real disappointment. It was for Kerry. He ends up going to Bengal and India and all the hardships. Can you imagine what thoughts were running through his head? Boy, if I had only gone to Tahiti, this would have been so much better. Well, here he is in India. When three of his children died, Kerry would still be content with God's sovereign working. Under the extreme heat and abject poverty, initially with dangers from snakes, crocodiles, and tigers in a remote and mosquito-ridden jungle house, and the death of another son, his wife started her slip into insanity. She would rant and rave about imaginary unfaithfulness of her husband, try to kill, kill him multiple times, and had to be physically restrained for the last 12 years of her life. During all this, while it ripped at his heart, Carrie was still at peace with God's sovereign plan. On the death of his second wife, Charlotte, he honored the name of God. He wrote this, My loss is irreparable, but still I dare not but perfectly acquiesce to the divine will. So many merciful circumstances attend this very heavy affliction as still yet yield me support beyond anything I ever felt in other trials. He knew the sovereignty of God. After 19 years of labor, a fire destroyed multiple translations of his work that took years to gather. Imagine how disappointed that would be, disappointing that would be. A Sikh and Telugu grammar and ten versions, ten versions of the Bible destroyed. And he didn't happen to have on his hand a thumb drive. He didn't have a backup in the cloud. Imagine, just imagine what that would be. Seven years without converts and finally getting one. And that one was fickle. When he first arrived, the English press said that papists, Catholics, had arrived in India. Not Baptists, papists. And so there was opposition from this misunderstanding. He received criticism and gossip, as I, as I mentioned. <clears throat> he, uh, he got letters. When he finally got letters, he was criticized for them. Carrie's first co-worker, John Thomas, was someone who was not very good with money. He actually was a bit of a fraud. And Thomas was the one that he partnered with to go to India. <clears throat> and when he got to India, John Thomas squandered the money, was living in luxury, while Carrie and his family lived in the shack in the jungle 
with all of the difficulties. And John Thomas had 12 servants. I mentioned he moved five times in the first seven months that he was there. He had an accident that caused him lameness throughout the rest of his life. He went to India and for 41 years never went back. He said this, I find that support in God which I can find nowhere else. And perhaps these trials have designed to put me upon trusting in and seeking happiness from the Lord alone. You see the other quote there about his hope of India's conversion. And he's going to focus on God and his word. Well, lesson number two. Lesson number two. Lesson number two. You see here... God uses small people from small places. Small people from small places. His education was minimal. He had no degrees. He had an honorary degree, doctorate. He had no savings. No savings at all. He had no political influence. He relied on the kindness of the Danish government to give him safe passage and safe harbor in India. His references were a band of country preachers half a world away. You saw the picture of his house where he was born. What God accomplishes in the life of man is not primarily dependent upon that man, but upon God. It's worth saying again. What God accomplishes in the life of man does not depend primarily upon the man, but upon God. If you have come from humble circumstances, you can, as William Carey said, expect great things from God and attempt great things for God. You can be used in a mighty way, even though you come from humble circumstances. Well, lesson number three. Lesson number three. The need to empathize with those in the field. He left for India in 1793. Two years later, he received a pack of letters, and one of them criticized him for engaging in affairs of trade. In other words, he was working to earn a living for his family as well as doing mission work, and he was criticized for that. The accusation hurt, and it hurt deeply. You see what he wrote there. It's a constant maxim with me that if my conduct would not vindicate itself, it's not worth vindicating. I only say that after my family's obtaining a bare allowance, my whole income in some months, much more, goes for the purposes of the gospel. Supporting persons to assist in the translation, write copies, teach school and the like. The love of money has not prompted me to pursue the plan that I have engaged in. I am indeed poor and shall always be so until the Bible is published in Bengali and Hindustani, and the people want no further instruction. Wow. Wow. When Carey and the British Missionary Society, and those 
primitive and particular Baptists were putting together the plans to send Carrie to India, you have this account, which was written by Andrew Fuller, a dear friend. Look at this quote. Our undertaking to India really appeared to me on its commencement to be somewhat like a few men who were deliberating about the importance of penetrating into a deep mine, which had never before been explored, and we had no one to guide us. And while we were thus deliberating, Carrie, as it were, said, Well, I will go I will go down if you will hold the rope. But before he went down, he, as it seemed to me, took an oath from each of us at the mouth of the pit to this effect that while we lived, we should never let go of the rope. We need to empathize. We need to understand and appreciate the work of those that are in the field. And love and support and pray for such individuals. Well, lesson number five. Lesson number five. And that is this. How to be salt and light in a dark place. The need... For Christian workers, uh, I'm sorry, the need for Christian workers to shepherd their family. I lost track here. Sorry. Um, Remember what happened with Carrie and his wife who slipped into insanity. When he sent his son away, he had learned from that lesson. And he wrote that paragraph there. Look at the second sentence. Be not satisfied with conducting yourself toward your wife with propriety. Let love to her be the spring of your contact toward her. Esteem her highly and so act that she may be induced thereby to esteem you highly. The first impressions of love arising from former beauty will soon wear off, but the esteem arising from excellency of disposition and substance of character will endure and increase. Her honor is not yours, and she, not, she cannot be insulted without you being degraded. This does not sound like a man who is angry and bitter at his wife or at God for his first wife's descent into madness. He understood the tenderness necessary in that marital relation for those who serve him. Well, lesson number five. Lesson number five, how to be salt and light in a dark place. And I would encourage you to look at this page. Look at that page. And as you do, you'll see the various ways that Carrie served even beyond the gospel work. He was a botanist an industrialist, an economist, humanitarian, media pioneer, agriculturalist, translator, astronomer, library pioneer. He was able to transform the culture. When he got to India, he saw not only child prostitution and slavery, but he also saw the practice of sati. Sati was the practice where widows could be emoliated, burned, on the funeral pyre of their husbands. The whole purpose of that was to 
for the, father, for the man's family to reclaim any finances and to not let them go to the woman. Women were not educated. Kerry, through his establishment of Sarampur, brought education to men, women, boys, and girls for the first time. Sick infants were exposed to die. Kerry saw the remains of one child that, whose body had been eaten by white ants while she was still alive. Euthanasia was carried out on a regular basis. Carrie established the first printed newspaper in India. Carrie educated and influenced a whole generation of civil servants through his work at Fort William College. He founded the Agricultural Society in India. He formed forestry management in India. He was the one who brought potatoes to India. <laughs> have you ever eaten in an Indian restaurant? If so, you will have potatoes. You can thank William Carey for that when you get to heaven. <laughs> By the way, I encourage you, try the Indian food. Not all of it's way too spicy. Be adventurous, develop a wide palate, and thank Mr. Carey when you get to heaven for the potatoes. Well, we're running out of time. Um, there's so much more to say. But I encourage you, look at this quote from uh, John Leachman. It's the middle of the last page there. He wrote back to England after witnessing Carey's uh, burial. And now what shall we do? God has taken our Elijah to heaven. He has taken our master from our head today. But we must not be discouraged. The God of missions lives forever. His cause must go on. The gates of death, the removal of the most eminent, will not impede its progress nor prevent its successes. Come, we have something more to do than mourn and be dispirited. With our departed leader, all is well. He has finished his course gloriously. But the work now descends on us. Oh, for a double portion of the divine spirit. So to honor the legacy of Cary, honor his Savior most. His Savior, our Savior, will be honored when we expect great things from his hand and attempt great things from God. And we need to be willing to hold the rope. Are you willing to do that? Are you willing to hold the rope for those who are your missionaries? whether they be local or foreign. Does your heart burn with a desire for the conversion of the lost? Do you fully understand what it is to be in a lost state? If so, it would be the height of coldness and apathy if you had no concern. I'll leave you with that challenge. Let's pray. Father, we readily confess that our hands are not steadfastly on that rope. We know that you can do great things 
and we know that you can use us. And we pray, O oh Lord, that you would use us either to hold the rope or to descend into that mine. O oh Lord, that you would use us for the mining and excavation of the lost souls to be brought to you as rich gems in your crown, Lord Jesus, that you would be glorified. Help us to be passionate about these things and not careless. We praise you in the name of your beloved Son. Amen.